0: Never shall I forget that night. Never shall I forget that smoke. Never shall I forget the small faces of the children whose bodies I saw transformed into smoke under a silent sky. Never shall I forget those flames that consumed my faith forever. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams to ashes. Never. Those words were written by Ali Wiesel, a Holocaust survivor. He recalls to a time as a teenager when he was captive in a Nazi concentration camp. And now as a grown man, he recalls to the period of his suffering as a moment that murdered his God and turned everything into ashes. But Ellie wasn't the only one who was enduring the sufferings of these camps in Germany. You may remember Tan Tanboon and her Christian family from the Netherlands who also ended up in these camps because they were helping the Jewish families during that time to escape these camps. And Corey, like Elie Wiesel, ended up surviving, but her sister, Betsy, didn't. And before Betsy died, Corey here recalls a time when she was lain by her dying sister, and Betsy asked her to move closer, for Corey uh, to move closer to her, and she whispered, in her ear and she says this, we must tell them, we must tell them that no pit is so deep that he is not deeper still. They will believe us because we have been there. Two people going through similar experiences of excruciating suffering, can reflect on it by one saying suffering murdered my God and the other saying no suffering can plumb the depths of God's love for me. How is this possible? One experience extinguishes his hope in God and the other inflames and fuels her hope. In God. Now, this is the question that is before us in Romans chapter eight verses 18 through 30. Please open your Bibles to this passage, Romans chapter eight, as we will now consider the next topic that Paul addresses. He's been dealing so far in the weeks that we've been looking at these verses, he's been dealing with our assurance Christian assurance that all believers have of belonging to God. And his primary argument was you can be assured because his spirit is in you. As the spirit of life, he frees you from sin and from death. That's what he's been arguing in the first 13 verses. And now, as we looked at last week, as the spirit of adoption, he assures you, he assures us that we are children of God. And now in verse 18, we come to the new section. And this section here, it deals with this very difficult and perplexing question. Don't our suffering suppress our hope of assurance. In other words, Paul is not just trying to, you know, slide through and completely ignore the fact of the reality before us. They were going through suffering. We go through suffering. Paul is a realist. He, of all the people, understood suffering. Suffering with Christ and suffering as a result of a fallen world. And to that question here, Paul gives this radical answer. Instead of extinguishing our hope, suffering actually fuels our hope. It fuels our hope in God. And here's why the Holy Spirit within us, he reminds us that we are destined for glory, that what we experience today, now, this is not it, this is not the goal. The Holy Spirit within us reminds us that there's more to come, and what's to come is so much more heavier, is so much more glorious than what we experience that we need to be living in light of our future reality. A glory that pales in comparison to our current suffering. I want us to read, beginning with verse 16, of Romans chapter 8 to kind of set the context, and then I'll make few observations about this text, but our verses for this morning will only be verses 18 through 22. Paul writes, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God." For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. I want us to read through verse 30. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according You see, verses 18, or really 19 through 30, they function as Paul's proof for how weighty our glory is. He says, your glory is great. And he gives us five reasons in the next verses, all the way up until 30, why verse 18 is true. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of This present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed for verse 19. Let me tell you why. And he gives us in this section five reasons about the greatness of our future glory. We'll look at the first one today. Paul says, your glory is so great that the whole creation groans for it. Verses 19 through 22. Says, your glory is so great that you yourself within yourself Within yourselves are groaning for it. Verses 23 through 25. Your coming glory is so great that the Holy Spirit groans within you for it. Verses 26 through 27. And then in verse 28, we sort of oftentimes rip this, rip this verse out of context, right? Because it's a glorious verse. All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called, right? But what is he arguing? He's saying, listen, your coming glory is so great that God orchestrates all things to accomplish it, to bring it about. And this coming glory is so great in verses 29 through 30 that God prepared it, for it from eternity past. Don't live life simply for the here and now. Don't give up, Christian, because today life is difficult. Think about this. If it is so difficult right now and if it is so weighty right now, think about the weight of coming glory. Think about how marvelous that will be. So here's what our passage here teaches us this morning. Christian, your coming glory is greater than your current suffering. It is so great that as we see in verses 19 through 22, that the creation itself longs for it to come, longs for your glory. There's a, the truth here that Paul states that I want us to look at in verses, in verse 18, the truth and then the proof. Truth and proof. Number one, truth, your coming glory is greater than your current suffering verse 18 notice here looking to your bibles in verse 17 paul had just stated that if we suffer with christ we will be glorified with him and now he goes on to explain this relationship between suffering and glory right verse 17 he says heirs also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Right? The verb here translated in verse 18, for I consider, is, is a mathematical term. It means I, I, I've i done the math. Paul is basically saying I've calculated, I counted the cost, and I count on this fact to be true. In other words, he's basically Encouraging Roman church Roman Christians, and he says, "Listen, I have thought about it, and I have concluded that our present suffering does not compare with what we will share as god 's children. Two plus two is four that 's how sure this is. It does not compare. He says something similar in second Corinthians chapter four verses. 16 and 17, he gives this personal conviction of the same truth when he says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Look with me at verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worthy, are not worthy to be compared to the glory, worthy and glory here. They are related to the ultimate or to the Old Testament concept of weight. Worthy comes from a commercial term that means to wait as much. And, and the word glory, as we've alluded to on a number of occasions, right, is, also comes from a root word to means to be heavy, in the sense of being valuable, like, like gold. And Paul is saying this, that you may feel weighed down by the heaviness of your sufferings today, and many do, he doesn't want to discount that. However, the, the heaviness and the value of your glory will far outweigh all that you have endured so far, and all that you will endure until you see the Lord. In other words, if you put all your sufferings in your life on the scale, right, it will be like dust compared to the, the weight of Mount Everest. It, it does not, it, it far exceeds, it eclipses that which you have right now. Now, what, what specifically does Paul say about our present suffering? here. He he says a couple of things, right? That these sufferings are diverse, and we see it in this chapter. What kind of suffering is he talking about? Well, they're diverse suffering. Certainly for Christians, one one type of suffering that we are promised to endure is the suffering for Christ. Because you carry the name of Christ, you will be persecuted. In fact, Christ spent a great deal amount of time, right, to prepare his disciples and to prepare the church to, to expect Right, If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. You will suffer for my name. So don't be surprised when suffering comes upon you. In fact, this is the, the idea here that we get in verse 17, is that we suffer with Christ. Right, Our association with him and our allegiance to Christ will result in us being hated by the world. And so he prepares us for this reality. But it seems that Paul is not limiting this the suffering to just simply Christian persecution, In other words, look at verse 35 with me. Later on, he will ask this question, who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to enumerate some of um, these sufferings, right? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword So he highlights some of the the things that that we go through. He describes these diverse suffering that we experience in this life as a result of being, what, in a fallen world, a world that is affected by sin. What are these sufferings? Well, it's the war. It's the war that breaks out in your backyard. It's the poverty that, that many find themselves in today. It's the broken relationships that we have to endure. It's the it's the loss of a child through miscarriage. It's your unemployment. It's maybe seeing your wayward son not serving the Lord, and and your suffering as a result of that. It's your cancer, your loneliness. I mean, it could be all host, whole host of headaches and pain that we go through in this life. In other words believers in Christ, we're not exempt from the suffering that everybody else experiences in this life because we live in a broken and a fallen world. And Paul is realistic, right? There's no reason to think that we will be freed from all of these troubles when we come to know the Lord. In fact, I think Jesus states the opposite of that reality. You will suffer more. You will suffer more. And yet our suffering is radically different from the unbelievers. Because even though it's diverse, first of all, second, I want you to see that it's temporary. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time, this present time, your suffering, he says, is not forever. And he links these sufferings to this present old sinful age, which began after Adam sinned. But he says this suffering will not last forever. And even though when we consider, you know, it's been over around 6,000 years that humanity has suffered as a result of sin, but in reality, for those who place their hope, right, and faith in Christ, 6,000 years is, is but a blip on the radar. Why? Because we're looking at it through the prism, through the lens of eternity. With eternal perspective. When Christ comes back or he calls us home, suffering will end for the sons of God. That's that's the whole emphasis. This is not it. There's something else that's coming. But not so for the unbelievers, friends. Their suffering will not end. Those who do not belong to Christ, they will suffer forevermore. But there's yet another difference between our suffering. He says that in our suffering, our suffering is actually pathway to glory. It leads to glory. When we suffer with Jesus, co-suffer, according to verse 17, meaning that if we experience the same lot as the son of man, right? As the man of sorrow, as he is called, had to experience living in this broken world, we will also experience what the Son of God experienced, and that is glory. If you identify with Christ in his suffering, you will for sure identify with Christ in his glory. Suffering leads to glory. And Jesus himself, the Son of God, he transforms our suffering into glory. It is guaranteed. Remember this passage in Hebrews chapter 12. Um, The author of Hebrews, he encourages these Christians to look to Jesus, to focus on him. And he says this, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy said before him, endure the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, why did Jesus endure the cross? Despising its shame, not regarding it as shameful. Why why did he do that? Well, because he says it's for the joy set before him. He looked forward to glory. He looked forward to the price, to his exaltation, to seeing so many people come to know the Lord and be saved and be forever in communion with God. He looked forward to that time and he considered that the future reward and glory was worth this temporal suffering. Now, we spoke about the current suffering, but let me ask you a question. What could be so great and what could be so glorious that could eclipse and that could outweigh our present suffering? Because I know that there are people who are suffering greatly. So what could be so glorious and so weighty? Well, the answer, I think, is found in verse 29. If you go to verse 29 when Paul uses the word glory for us here on multiple multiple times in in this section, he's thinking about our future Christ-likeness. He's talking about longing and anticipating our future Christ-likeness. We will be conformed to the image of his son. He's not just talking about longing to be in heaven, to be away from suffering right, in a better place. You know, we oftentimes hear this, he's in a better place right now. He's no longer suffering. That is not what Christians look forward to. That is not the glory, even though it's included in that. But the the goal, right, and the, the prize that we're looking forward to is Paul says what God had planned and his plan is so that we would be conformed to the image of his son, One day, all of God's children will be like Jesus in righteousness and perfection. That is glorious. That is the weight of glory, friends. And as as Christians, we must see with the eyes of faith that what we have been promised as God's children so far outweighs temporal suffering that we are more than willing to endure present struggles in this life while we await for that call. And the encouragement here is that, listen, no matter how deep your pit that you find yourself in, you will never be separated from the love of Christ. That's where he leads. That's where he goes. It doesn't matter. Why? Because the love of God goes deeper still. Nothing will separate you from that goal. And Paul's argument is, if that glory is so great, well, then it's worth it. It's worth it. We must conclude, friends, today that the sum total of our suffering in this life is dust compared to the glory that is promised to us, the glory of being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We, we all understand this principle. We all work with this principle Maybe you are attending college or, or maybe graduate school, right? And you're spending countless hours studying and, and you're spending thousands of dollars to earn your degree. Why? Because you know that the goal is worth it. The goal of getting that job that will then pay off all the sweat that you're putting into it now. If your are parents, right, you're, you're homeschooling your children maybe, You believe that you are the best teacher for your children and you want to invest your time and energy into them and it's hard. But all of these commitments, even though they're challenging, they all pay off greatly, right? You are looking forward to that goal. In the same way, focusing on the future glory that will be revealed to us enables you to endure present suffering. Again, the challenge for us and Paul's encouragement for us is to weigh what is happening to you right now with what is promised to you later as a child of God, as the son of God, right? A future focus affects present perseverance. So here's the truth. In verse 18, your coming glory is greater than your current suffering. Do we believe it? Do we believe it? Well, so massive is this truth that Paul goes on to add three proofs or multiple, actually five proofs in the following verses all the way up until verse 30. And we'll look at just one here in the remaining of our time, verses 19 through 22. Our future glory is so great that the whole creation eagerly longs and groans for it. Verse 19, look with me, For he continues to offer reasons why he said what he said in verse 18. So number two, proof. The whole creation is groaning for your glory. Groaning for your glory. He introduces here in verse 19, or in verse 22, really, the concept of groaning, right? And verse 22 says that uh, creation is groaning. In verse 23 says that we are groaning, believers, Christians are groaning, and finally in verse 26, he speaks of the groanings of the Holy Spirit. Really, this word groaning, this whole concept, kind of glues this whole section together. What is groaning? Well, groaning is this deep, uh, inward murmur. It's this moan, almost, right, in response to your suffering. It's, it's sort of a, a, a cry, that cannot be verbalized. You're in such great pain that you can't even detect what you're saying. You're groaning, you're responding to this suffering and it can't even be verbalized. It's a cry. And Paul says that in verses 19 through 22, this physical creation here, he almost like personifies it and he says that this physical creation is in this groaning state right now, waiting for something great to happen. Creation groans. What is included in this creation? Who is groaning? Well, in verse 23, Paul, you will notice that he says, We ourselves. So he separates the believers from this first section, the creation. So it doesn't include the believers. Uh, The unbelievers, friends, they're not looking for anything to come, as we will find out in just a moment. So I think this, uh, and many conclude, most of the commentators, they conclude that this creation here, it includes everything that God has created minus angels and humans. So subhuman creation. The entire creation Including all the living things, minus humans, is groaning with this anxious longing. Verse 19, for the anxious longing. It's an interesting phrase here because it has this idea of looking with an outstretched neck. Like when you're waiting for someone, you know, my kids, oftentimes they wait for me to come after work. And so. Um, our house is like three houses away from the corner. And oftentimes, you know, I, I see them even through the window, just kind of extend their neck out and look beyond just to see like, okay, is he coming? So it's this anticipation, you know, something is going to take place. And so you're, you're sort of outstretched and you're looking forward and seeing, okay, where is it? It, it's supposed to be here. It's coming soon. You're waiting for something. And when you couple that with this other phrase that Paul uses, eagerly waits, eagerly waits, or waits eagerly in your NASB translation, this phrase can almost be translated as on standing on tiptoes. So not only is your neck outstretched where you're waiting for something to happen, but you want to get so close to it that you're on your tippy toes trying to look, where is it? It's coming here and that's how Paul pictures creation looking forward to something great to happen. What is this great thing that the creation is anticipating? Well we find out that creation is waiting, verse 19, for the revealing of the sons of God. Creation is waiting for our revelation, which will happen when Christ returns with this final redemption and glorification. When Jesus comes back, the sons of God, the children of God will be fully and finally revealed. That's what Paul says in Colossians 3.4, for instance, Paul, when Christ who is our life is revealed, when we see him, then his children, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. You'll be identified. Second Thessalonians 2.14, he says, It was for this he called you through the gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, here is the reality. A day is coming when all believers will be made perfect like Jesus. They will be transformed into the image of the Son. They will be glorified to look like him. They will be revealed to be his children. But today, his children are hidden in the world. I don't think it's a surprise, right, that we don't, often, we don't often look like Jesus. The sons of God don't often look like Jesus. Like we suffer and we still sin. But a day is coming when we will graduate into glory with no more suffering, no more sin that we will have to deal with, no more death. We will experience total freedom. That's what he goes on to say. We'll be set free. We will be set free as children of God. Now, why is this creation that is personified as this man sort of on tiptoes and with an outstretched neck looking forward to this revelation? What is the reason? Well, he gets into it in verse 20. He gives us the reason for creation's groaning. And he says this, that, you know, creation today is not what it was created to be. is not what it was intended to be. The groaning of creation is the result of man's sin. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly. It is subjected because of our sin. Adam, friends, he did not consult. We just read Romans or uh, Genesis chapter 3. He did not consult, for instance, with the animal world. Nor did he discuss his decision to disobey God with the rest of creation. Creation did not choose to suffer or the suffering for itself. Like, yeah, blessing or, or suffering. You know, blessing and curse. What would you like? It did not have that chance. Unwillingly, not willingly, man chose and because of God's judgment on Adam, this judgment included, what, creation itself. That's what we read in Genesis 3:17 and 18. Cursed is the ground because of you. Because of you on your account. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you and you will eat the plants of the field. Friends, violence and death, even in the animal kingdom, they are, not, they are the result of the curse. It wasn't created this way. And beginning with Adam's sin, nature suffers in various ways. Earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, droughts, floods, extreme heat, extreme cold that takes away life. Destruction and death were not part of the original creation because as we read in the first two chapters, everything was good. But Paul says that God subjected creation to futility and frustration, futility. It means that no matter how hard you try to avoid corruption, you just can't. You can't succeed. And creation is trying to avoid death, but it can't. There's this sense of helplessness and and hopelessness. And we experience that in our lives, like we, we buy a house, brand new house, and soon termites find their way to the house, and they start destroying your house. If termites don't destroy it, then hurricanes come and destroy it, or earthquakes, or floods, or something else. Why? Because creation is in pain. Our brand new cars, no matter how new they are, in just a matter of time, they begin to leak. Rust begins to work away at the metal. Sooner or later, that brand new car, just a few years later, finds its way in the junkyard, why? Because of corruption, because of futility. Someone said, what is the point of spring when a few months later winter appears? What is the point of life when death is shortly to follow? That's our cycle, right? We're in fall right now. It's gonna be a depressing season leading into winter. And then we all look forward to spring, life, life, great. And then summer comes and the sun comes out and scorches everything and everything dies and we go right back into fall. And year after year, decade after decade, millennia after millennia, we experience this because this creation was subjected to futility, but not all is lost, friends, because look at verse 20, he, God, subjected it in hope, in hope the hope of creation's eager longing, verses 21 and 22. God subjected creation in hope. What hope? We read about that hope in Genesis 3.15. Friends, even in the midst of this first confrontation, when man refused to obey God's orders, when he thought that he knew of a better way that even in the midst of judgment, God pronounces a blessing in Genesis 3.15. And he says, there will come a seed, and that seed will crush the serpent who, had, who has caused this whole mess. And we know who the seed is. Jesus is that seed, Right? The hope is that he would come and that he would take on human flesh to restore what the first human had lost. And because of the work of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection, we have a sure hope of being revealed as children of God. And the creation is anticipating this very reality for our revelation. Why can't creation fulfill its purpose the way it is right now? Because of sinful human beings, that is the point. Because of sinful human beings. It was perfect before man sinned and and put everything in chaos. So creation is is anxious. It is waiting for man to be restored back to its ori- his original design so that it can be renewed and so that it can be freed from its curse and corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In order for creation to fulfill its desire or intended purpose, we need to be perfect and creation is longing for that time and that time will come when you and I will be revealed fully and finally as God's children and creation will be remade so that it too would please the Lord. Friends, the fact that creation suffers and that we suffer today does not undermine the fact that God has a plan and he will accomplish it. If you're a child of God, your future glory is sure, and it is so great that even this creation is waiting for your revelation. it anticipates this glory. Look at verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Paul uses this example of a mother giving birth. These groans, they're not death groans, but they're groans that are about to bring life. Mother who's giving birth knows that after a time of groaning, there will be a time of great joy as she will hold that child. This is exactly what this groaning is about. It's a groaning of anticipation. Come, Lord, come. Friends, as we close, I want us to be convinced of this truth. Paul wants us to be convinced of this truth. God wants us to be convinced of this truth. Your coming glory is greater than your current suffering. Not only this, but your current suffering—it doesn't suppress hope of glory; it only fuels it. So, the deeper you are, the the greater you understand the weight of the glory that is coming, because it's going to be more. It's going to be more glorious. We may not be going through Holocaust, but we all face our suffering, and our suffering may get more intense. And As we groan through various pain and distresses, remember, we're not only anticipating to be more like Jesus when we are finally revealed as his children, but even through these sufferings, we are being made more like Jesus. We are being transformed today, even through suffering. God uses these things as a means to make us like his son, because that's what he said in Romans 5. If you turn back with me to Romans 5, I want you to to read verse 3 and following. Paul says, and not only this, but we also exult in our tribulations and our sufferings, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint. God ordains our suffering not to crush our hope, not to crush our hope but it is to use our suffering so that we would be more like Jesus Christ. And you know, as we spend more time with one another, I I find out about some of the sufferings that that some of you are going through. I know that God is causing you to depend more on him, to to cry out more to him, to know him better, to love him more, that's a good thing, friends. It's a glorious thing. It's a good purpose to be like your Lord as you anticipate final revelation. Friends, this is not a fantasy, right? This is is a Christian reality. And it's not only reserved for for these, you know, church history book Christians like Tan Boons and, and such. You know, we read about them. We're like, man, this is great. Read about Paul's perseverance. like, well, go, Paul. You know, go Betsy. What about me here? I'm sure you can think of some people who suffered greatly in your family and in your circle of friends who have gone through deep waters but have come to experience a deeper love of God as a result of their suffering. I want you to see also in this passage as we'll get to it in a few weeks, that God does not promise to remove our sufferings. Look at verse 35. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? So he's basically saying all of these things, these external pressures, right? um, They are trying to separate you from God. And look what God says. He says, okay, I'm not going to separate you from these things that are trying to separate you from God, that are trying to cause you to doubt God, God's goodness. That's not what he's saying. Look at verse 20 or 37. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer. See what he's saying? In them, It's not that God removes them so that they're not a threat to your security or to your assurance or to your separation. No, that's not what he's doing. He's not saying that I will remove them. What he is saying is that I will take you through them in all these things. You will become a conqueror through Christ in all of your suffering. You will become a conqueror. He doesn't promise to remove. He promises to make you victorious through them. Christian, your coming glory is greater than your current suffering. And as we look at creation around us, creation itself is anticipating your own revelation so that it too can get renewed. And that's glory worth waiting for to be like Jesus Christ, right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Our hearts overflow with gratitude, with gratitude to you because of your promises to sustain us through the deepest struggle, through the deepest pain, deepest suffering. I pray you help us, Lord, to live this. First, to affirm it in our heads, in our minds, but also, Lord, as we go through these things, as you bring us into various valleys, that we will trust you, we would walk with you, and that we would truly experience your love at a deeper level knowing that it is not cause to be alarmed, but a cause to anticipate a heavier glory. And so look forward to and keep fighting and keep going. Thank you that you promise us victory in your son, Jesus Christ. May we forever be thankful. In his name we pray, amen.